Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Joining me today is two-dimensional actor, oncologist, proctologist, virologist, gynecologist, lawyer and activist, Jim Carey. Jim, welcome to the show. You're welcome. Now, you've attempted to raise your profile to that of Mo Ansart lately by making some strange claims. But before we start, could I just get you to pop your hand on this book, please? A Bible. There we go. Now, let's discuss your credentials. You're a... Filthy, rotten liar. I don't know if that's the case. Perhaps willfully ignorant of the facts when it comes to vaccinations. Is it hot or am I just sweating? Come on, Jim. We've barely started. I hate these kind of questions. All right. Let's establish your position. What happened the day before you went on your Twitter rant? I've been probed. I've been, you know, stuff. It's like, you know, I was taken up on a spaceship. What took place? Biopsies. Everything. Just to prove the truth. Are you okay now? Uh... Yeah, once you get over the morning sickness and stuff. Now, you claim that the aliens were experimenting with some sort of brain enlargement process. What were the results? No growth whatsoever. Sounds about right. Any side effects? You have cobwebs and outer things from the outside world that are entering into your head. Hmm. So, onto the vaccines. The US is experiencing unprecedented growth in deaths associated by preventable diseases, such as measles, with around 650 deaths in 2014. As a virologist, can you detail exactly what a vaccine is made of? It's got crazed elements in it. Which is preferable to dead children? I think it's a more naturalistic... Hmm. How do you form these views? Based in reality, except for the magical thing. And can you describe the people who take you seriously? They're terrified. Understandably. We're after everybody on this one. Which is really the most distressing thing about this whole issue, isn't it? I'm not really about, like, just being a maniac and getting in front of everybody. But the implications here are greater than you realise. It's not like that. I, I don't kind of believe in head trips. Then why not go and study the peer-reviewed evidence, apply some critical thinking, and discuss the issue with an expert in the field of virology? Hey, this really isn't my thing. Hmm. Jim Carrey, thanks for coming on the show. Right. I hope I accomplished my Unfortunately, you've accomplished real harm. Yeah, research. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast. For a long time, since a long time, I have been away on holidays and I thought I'd ease back into this while they demolish the house next door to mine so you can probably hear a bulldozer going through a house. It's making for a very awkward recording experience, but joined on the line I have from the US at Amadeus Almighty. How are you, sir? I'm doing just fine. How are you? Couldn't be happier, apart from the fact that I can barely hear anything that's going on. (laughs) (laughs) And we've also got Bruce, who is at Atheist A. Yep. And the A not being the letter A-E-H for Canadian, which means question mark. It means a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) So whereabouts in the USA, Amadeus? In North Carolina. Very well. What's going on there of late? I actually just moved to a new neighborhood, which is pretty much a high proselytization zone. Every Saturday I have religious paraphernalia in my door. 
<laughs> All this paraphernalia that's being dropped through your letterbox, I've, I, on occasion I'll get that here. What sort um, of... Well, I've gotten the Watchtower. Oh, that old chestnut. It's a good read. <laughs> are, 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 you're familiar with the Watchtower? Oh, yes. It's an international publication. It's highly regarded. I've gotten a few Bible kids camps. Uh, camp advertisements. Right. Do you have for, kids? I do have a son. He's seven years old. Would he be interested? I don't think so. He's pretty aware of, you know, my atheism and everything. And he has questions and he's pretty open-minded, but he's also pretty much a natural skeptic too. So I'm pretty proud of that. Excellent. So just sort of through osmosis, he's picked up some of these critical thinking tools. Yes, definitely. Actually, after this interview, there'll be an interview with somebody called Maha, who is writing a book for the kiddies on critical thinking. It's along the lines of uh, the book of big questions. So um, pertinent, and I think it's sort of aimed probably a little bit younger than seven, but what's his take on all this sort of stuff when he sees it in the letterbox? I haven't really shown him. I don't want to put that on him right now. His mind is impressionable, and I don't want him to get the wrong idea about things. I try to keep factual type of things, things that I know that I can confirm is true. Mm. Bruce, do you have kids? I have four kids. Goodness gracious. Oh, wow. (laughs) Collecting the scent. And are they fans of the Watchtower? Uh, Huge fans. They have no idea what it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a comic book for adults. Yeah, it's... uh... So mine range from six down to one. If you ask the three oldest ones, they would say they do believe in God right now because my wife is Catholic, I think, as most people know. They ask questions. They know I'm atheist. They know I don't believe. Neither me or my wife push it. I'm confident that they'll start asking questions as they get older. Mm. My seven-year-old already is, so. Very well. Which one's your favorite? No, you don't have to answer Um, that. Whichever one's not annoying (laughs) at the moment. I I recently went on holidays to France for three weeks and couldn't help myself. I ran into the Jehovah's Witnesses in sort of the town square in Poitiers, which is where I did a student exchange many years ago. And yeah, I couldn't help myself. They wanted to ask me about where I was going when I died. So I gave them the only answer I know. And that's, well, the same place you are. That's worm food. I didn't necessarily like that very much. (laughs) It wasn't really on their script. What I found interesting is doesn't matter which language because I was speaking French to these, and they were speaking French to me, is you hear the same arguments. I, I said, what proof have you got for God? And he reached for his Bible, and I sort of said, ah, 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 ah no, no. <laughs> we don't go with books that have claims. We go with evidence. What's your reason for believing? And he dropped the watchmaker argument, which I found to be <sighs> rather tiresome, so I had to wrap that up. <laughs> <laughs> That is a tiresome one, yes. What sort of arguments are you encountering? All the normal cliches, hey, Amadeus? (laughs) I had the basic presuppositional argument. You already know there's a God recently. That one is the most annoying to me because that's just lazy. Do you know there's a God? It's. (laughs) I really don't think so. You know, it's not just lazy, it's arrogant. Yeah, it is. To tell me what you think I believe in is just rude. How do you respond? When I get that one, I get a little bit... um, flippant and say, well, isn't exactly that, isn't it? Rather arrogant to assume that you know what I know? Yeah, something generally along those lines and basically try to turn their argument back around on them and show them if I'm assuming their arguments for them, that's not fair to them, but it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't stick. They have different rules for them and different rules for you. So, for example, the watchmaker argument, when I popped it back on them and said, well, okay, if, if something created the tree, that you're assuming this is God, well, what created your God if everything has a first cause? <sighs> 
They don't like that. Yeah. Well, they always go to the special pleading at that point, right? Well, they have exactly. to. There's nowhere else to go. That's the corner you can't back out yeah. of. Absolutely. And when when they start talking about God's the first cause, I always ask them, why can't the universe just be the eternal one? We know we know that energy can't be created or destroyed, so the energy of the universe is just being in some form, and this is just the current form of it. I don't know. I don't understand that, given that what I'm led to believe by people who are much smarter than me is that there was a Big Bang. We don't know what came before that. We don't know if there was energy there. No, I understood that, but I'm just well, if you go I, with the laws with of thermodynamics, that. it says that you can't destroy energy, so it would, to stick with the laws of physics, it would make sense to me. And I'm not saying I know this, I'm not claiming anything by any means, but <laughs> it would just make sense that whatever energy was there to explode into our universe was always existing in some form. Maybe it was a different universe. Maybe it was a singularity. Maybe it was whatever, right? Hmm. That just makes sense to me that, you know, so we, since you can't destroy energy, it just, that that's the eternal thing. And it's just, it changes form. So the Big Bang was one of those changes of form. Again, no claim, just. <laughs> no. And, and happy to throw my hands up and say, I don't know at this point. Mm. These little memes that you're throwing about, bending about, Bruce. Yes. What's going on with these? Well, these started, I don't even know how long ago, but I was finding myself debating free will a lot at one point in time. And mm. I was tired of going through the same arguments over and over again with different people. So one day I decided to screen capture one of them. And uh, I have a phone app on my phone that's it's kind of designed to turn things into cartoons is what it is. It's called Halftone. So I put it through there just for uh, shits and giggles to see what it would look like. And it ended up looking like this neat little card. <laughs> so I tossed it up there and slowly over, I don't know, it's probably been six months or something I've been doing this. Every time I come up with what it seems like a good argument for me, I screen cap it or I'll, you know, sometimes I'll purposely write it to make one of them and I'll put it through the processing and it seems to have caught on and a lot of people seem to enjoy them. And I've found these things floating about on Facebook and Google Plus and periodically they'll show up on my timeline from people. And Isn't it nice to get your own stuff retweeted back at you? It's that, nice, that's yeah. when you really know you're internet famous. <laughs> <laughs> but are we are we going to be expecting some sort of atheist a uh, pack of playing cards sort of the critical thinking 52 different cards of bruce's best thoughts that's a good idea mr oz atheist was dming me the other day asking me what if i should make coasters or something out of them Ooh, so playing cards bad. is a good idea <laughs> yeah i like the coasters one as well they're certainly <laughs> formatted for that i'd have to shrink them down a bit but even like a business card style that you could just like casually leave on your coffee table for when the religious <laughs> family's over yeah <laughs> yeah here's something from somebody who's internet famous can't refuse yeah there you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> hand it out when you go and uh encounter the people on the street corners pr proselytizing and oh that would drop, be painful drop one of these little bad boys because um, i hope nobody starts using them for that <laughs> <laughs> why not why not i mean i live around the corner from a church and i on my way to the pub which is my religious establishment yeah on occasion, I'm engaged in conversation with these people. And a conversation when it's 1v3 or 1v4, it's it's often difficult to finish off a discussion before or, or a topic before moving on to the next thing, before you get the mm -hmm. sort of gish gallop next question launched at you. So, yeah, maybe uh, when somebody says, uh, gives you the old watchmaker argument, you just whip out your pack of playing cards and go, well, here's here's what Bruce has to say on it. Just, just ponder that while I answer the next person's question. What? I actually have one for the watchmaker argument, although I, I'm not calling it the watchmaker. I should redo it and actually refer to the more common version of it. So, Would you like to give us one? Have you got one handy? Just maybe announce it and uh, do it down the line in your best Canadian accent. <laughs> My best Canadian accent. To me, the best argument against the watchmaker argument is simply that uh, you know a watch isn't a 
a self-replicating organic being or entity. It's an absolutely horrible analogy to compare a watch to living, you know, to life, right? It's completely dishonest. And you have to assume that the life is created, whereas uh, I, I agree with him. It's obvious a watch is created. You find it in the forest and you're going to know somebody created it, right? Mm-hmm. Even you find something you've never seen before, some machine that you've never never encountered in your life before, you can probably figure out that somebody created this thing, right? Mm-hmm. But you find some unknown three-headed you know, moose, and I'm not going to immediately assume somebody created it, right? It's a new species that formed, right? Yes, but in both cases, you could sort of apply that uh, scientific method and begin to learn more and more about it and its origins. Absolutely, you could. In one scenario, you're going to find out that it was uh, created by an intelligence, you know, because it's a machine with inorganic moving parts that were fitted together. And the other one was a, again, a self-replicating organic entity, right? Yes, I apologize if I seem a bit stilted. I keep turning my microphone down to try and cut out this, (sighs) this bulldozer which was also created, (laughs) creating havoc. (laughs) Amadeus, what's your story? What's your reason for getting involved with this? I mean, we've never, up until about 10 minutes ago, we didn't even follow each other, so I have no insight into how your mind operates. Grew up very heavily indoctrinated Baptist Christian, and then later non-denominational, which is basically still Baptist. Over time, I guess I studied the Bible. I had my doubts and I really felt like everything, I wasn't getting the answers from religion and everything. I really applied myself into reading the Bible and studying and everything. And it, it all just seemed like a lie to me. And my family basically is still very much Christian, very heavily into the church and everything like that. To me, it's kind of personal when I talk about religion because this is still something that's very much a part of my life. So this is a relatively and, recent move out of uh, theism. Well, not really recent, honestly. Um, recent more in terms of me being outspoken about it on the internet and actually engaging in debates. But I've actually been openly atheist, at least to my family, for about eight years. What have you learned about yourself? I've just learned to appreciate evidence. I've learned to appreciate critical thinking. It's something that's very important to me to be able to confirm what I believe in confirm what I can know to learn more about my surroundings and and everything like that. I have a real passion for learning and I just feel like I have a real insight to the debate because I know it from both sides. I know how it is to be a believer and to have those conditions to really think that you have a relationship with God. And then I know the psychological side of that, the placebo effect of that. I feel like I can just offer an insightful opinion and have a real say-so in the debate. Is your partner a theist? Uh, no, she's not, actually. Is she active? Um, I describe her as apatheist. Doesn't care about the question. Very well. Bruce, how do you handle that? Well, my my wife isn't an overly... I don't say, how do I use the word? She's not an overly pious Catholic. She actually doesn't go to church that often uh, due to family issues, whatever. I mean, she'll... She puts the family before the church, so she's not into debating at all. <laughs> so it's actually one of the reasons I went into Twitter is because my atheist debating was moving on to Facebook. Yeah, you need to. And change. she made the comment that she couldn't get away from it. You know, she'd open up Facebook and it'd be, you know, our differences would be just kind of slammed into her face, right? Mm. <clears throat> so that's why I opened up my Twitter account was so that I could move my atheism off of Facebook. I was like, okay, no, that's fair enough, right? You know, I, I'll give her the respect to choose when she wants to have those discussions. And we have had the discussions periodically, but for the most part, we just respect each other's 
beliefs and positions and neither one of us are pushy to the other one. Neither of us are pushy with our kids. I made a couple of ground rules with our kids because we, we do homeschool our kids. So one of my ground rules was is that there better not be any, even, even a hint of creationism in any of the material that she pulls in for them. And I've nixed a couple of homeschool school boards that we have here because they do support creationist science. And I said, there's, we're not touching them with a 10-foot pole. So that's about the only real rule that I've put in place. Oh, I put in the rule that our kids aren't allowed to be alone with any of the priests at her church. So some pragmatic things, right? <laughs> That's the sort of rule I think that would just be common sense. It would be, yes. But I was, you know, I'm like, I know I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it, right? Hmm. So where to from here, guys? Do you think we're making a, a difference when we're going in and engaging theists in debates? And are we changing the world? Are we changing the opinions of the people who are watching these debates? I actually think we are. I would agree in that you may not be immediately changing the person's mind that you're talking to, but there are people who do tune in and do pay attention to what's being said and the differences in the arguments. I've honestly had a few people, you know, respond, say that, you know what, I'm going to read up on this or check this Bible verse out. Do more research on what you said about this because, you know, that sparked my interest. And it may not be a significant change or anything, but at least to change the general stereotype of what people think atheists are. I fully agree with that as well. Um, the one thing that I don't like seeing is the people that are just outright assholes to theists and make generalized, stereotypical, bigoted comments. Really irks me when I see atheists on Twitter saying stuff like all theists are retarded or all theists are, you know, drooling idiots. Do you think the people making those claims, however, have been in the movement very long? Uh, some of them, yes. I've known some of these guys since I started on Twitter, you know, a couple years ago, and they claim they've been atheists for years and years, you know. It boggles my mind, right? I mean, it's just pure hatred that they spew at these people and i don't i don't understand it but if they're that good at critical thinking surely they would have worked out by now that that approach <laughs> simply does not work i would hope right but I, I see it far too often where they'll make that broad statement all theists are idiots or all theists are uneducated morons see i liken this to sales in the sense that the three of us were all out here selling our ideas and when was the last time you bought a car off somebody you did not like never absolutely <laughs> Yeah. So, first rule of sales is sell yourself. And if you're selling yourself as an asshole, well, you're <laughs> probably not likely to get many people join the fold. There you go. So, if anybody takes away anything from this discussion, I'd uh, probably start there. So, I'd rather lead by example. I think you'll, if you look at the, uh, not, not to, I don't want to sound elitist here, but you look at the follower count of a lot of these assholes, and they're not going to have tons of followers for the most part. Right. Uh, the Amazing Atheist is probably one of the few that <laughs> might be an exception to that. For the most part, I, I think you see the the results. I, I see a lot of people that are polite debaters. They're, I mean, there's some firebrands out there that are you know harsh, but they're not outright assholes that are catching the attention of more people on Twitter, and it's becoming more common. Amadeus, do you think we're making progress there? A bit. I don't see that many. There's a few that I can name. They're assholes every time. For the most part, I see many people who join in my debates also carrying on a polite debate. And there's a few snarky comments here and there, and we all do that, of course. But I mean, for the most part, everything is pretty much a polite tone unless the theists themselves, you know, start using defense mechanisms and, and ad hominems and all of that, you know, and that's on, the only time I, I usually do it in retaliation. So... That's when my asshole nature comes out. But <laughs> I'm about the same. I've noticed a distinct difference in the 
couple years that I've been on Twitter, I've whether I've just trimmed out my followers differently or if I'm following different people, but um, I've noticed a, dif- a, a definite swing towards a more polite nature. So again, it could just be that I'm following different people or, um, I mean, I'd love to say that I've had an influence on some people and, and their style. Quite, quite uh, I mean, possibly. some people have told me I have, but. A lot of atheists, once they get involved, they're, they're coming out guns blazing. They want to win an argument at all costs. A, because invariably they're right, <laughs> but they go about <laughs> it in a bad way and that, uh, that comes across badly. But once you're able to have an argument put to you, identify where the flaw is, determine what the fallacy is, and respond quickly and succinctly. Perhaps that changes the tone. And once people become more seasoned at this, maybe that's what you're seeing. I don't know. That's probably a pretty good assessment because there's a lot of people that I've followed for a long time that have also cooled off a bit. Myself included, probably. I was probably more of a firebrand to start. I can say the same for myself. I was a little bit more adamant at first. But you catch more flies with honey. So I've noticed I've gotten a lot farther in the conversation and a lot and had more of an impact when, you know, I was polite enough to let them explain themselves and thoughtfully ask questions. Well, what do you think about that? Why? Why do you think that is? And and things like that. It's just more effective, in my opinion. I had one kid who was on Twitter being an absolute dick about evolution and being, you know, all the horrible cliches that is you know, creationist science teacher told them down in the South there. Right. And I just kept being polite with him, asking questions. And next thing you know, I ended up having a DM conversation with him. He follows me now. I follow him still. He, in DM, he, one day he came to me and he's like, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but my father just committed suicide a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. So to, to go from this guy who was just like bad mouthing atheists and being rude and being, was just, he was dealt with to be a troll and a poe, right? And then just by being polite with him and not, you know, not de- devolving into the, the flame war with him like some people were doing at that same time, we basically ended up forming a friendship, right? And he, he reveals this, you know, this incredibly intimate secret of his life to me. So here I am giving him advice and trying to, you know, what, what does an atheist say to somebody like that, right? <laughs> That's just gone through that, right? Especially when he's a theist. But he's, he's definitely having doubts too. He's absolutely doubting things and he's questioning things that his teachers are telling him. And I think we're absolutely having an impact. This bodes very well. Not necessarily for his scenario. I feel for the poor guy. Not, Abs- I can think of half a dozen theists with whom I've had back and forth and much the same sort of deal. You know, I end up in DM and hearing all this commentary on their lives, which is really important to them. And, and some of it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. And why they come to me, I don't know, perhaps because I'm prepared to listen. I think that's the key, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have doubts, but they don't have anyone to talk to about it. And, you know, who wants to go talk to the angry atheist about it, right? That's going to mock your right. beliefs and mock everything you say. Very well. Gentlemen, let's move along very quickly. What's the Pope up to? How's he going with global warming? Has he solved it yet? <laughs> <laughs> he took his, he, I think he was, it was positive that he came out on that. I, I think he needs to worry more about his internal problems and um, get that under control. I don't know. It's a tough call between global warming, in which we'll probably have no kids ever in the future, and uh, the kids that we have <laughs> running around at the moment at risk. So it's I think he tr- can have a bigger impact on helping the lives of the kids that his priests are are molesting and getting these people to justice than he will on climate change. I mean, it's great that he's making the comment, but mm. I would like to see a few of his bishops and priests carted out of the Vatican in handcuffs. Mm. Amadeus? I think his announcement works for the sheep of the world. 
uh, all the opposers who will just take his word and, you know, now support global warming because he does. That's at least a step in the right direction for that. Yeah, I think I agree with Atheist A and that he should probably deal with the internal issues. Clean your own house before you clean the greenhouse. Yeah. Really. <laughs> if, uh, There's other people working on the greenhouse. Um, he's got... Do you reckon he could pray it better? <laughs> he could try and fail miserably. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, gentlemen, thoughts on uh, Ken Ham's Ark Park? Can we burn it to the ground? (laughs) (laughs) What a horrible waste of money. That's just an example of Christians being just frivolous with with their beliefs instead of actually showing the world what what they are supposed to believe as far as loving thy neighbor. Mm. They could have used that money to feed so many people or do so much good in the community or whatever. Or feed so many termites. I mean, think of all the termites who are going hungry. <laughs> Very well, gentlemen. Are there any causes that you would like to speak up about, uh, charity or so forth, you'd like to reference? My wife has actually been has picked the charity. So the main charity that we're currently donating to is actually a Christian charity. So I'm not going to give it a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Very well. So let's put all our money towards Amadeus's. So at Amadeus Almighty, what sort of charity would you like to send money to? Don't say Ken Ham. Uh, well, I'm a fan of kids, so I don't know if St. Jude's counts as religious <laughs> <laughs> or not. <laughs> but I've given money to them this past year. I love to give it to them every year. You know, I, I donate to the Red Cross a lot. They do a lot of good work as well. There's actually a fund called Save the Children that uh, that is a good secular charity as well that i've been intending to get some money sent over to excellent well stick those into google very well gentlemen thank you for coming on the show and talking nonsense with me appreciate it anytime man here's a tweet by chris krismensky i am god and i am the idea that became a word that became a virus that became a plague that brought the infected to their knees Follow Chris at C-E-K Books and grab his latest work, All These Quiet Places, a collaboration with Jen August about domestic violence on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined on the line from Canada, Big City Dick number one. So that's the numeric number one. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Adam, and uh, thank you for having me on again. It's a pleasure. Now, yes, we recorded an interview that didn't go to air. So whilst it's the second time around and I technically haven't met you, (laughs) this time around is... uh, (laughs) Look, for the sake of the audience, let's just go ahead and pretend that we've never met. Absolutely. What do you do? Uh, well, I'm a police officer, amongst other things that I do, but that's what I do for a living. Critical thinking for a living of sorts. Uh, in a way, I, uh, I'm a detective, so I uh, basically my job is I get to figure out things, which is is uh, at least the best way that I like to look at it. And that's the name of the big city dick references your line of work. <laughs> Uh, it does, yeah. It's uh, I, I don't know how widespread the reference is, but certainly amongst Canadian police officers, a dick being a very old term uh, from uh, Dick Tracy, the comic strip, so going back to the 30s. Currently, if you're you know if you've moved up in the ranks or have gone into a uh, major crimes role, then they'll sometimes call you you know you've moved up to be a big city dick. So <laughs> have you got the Apple Watch yet, Dick Tracy? Style? I don't yet. I know the the two way wrist communicator. I need one of those. Yes, you do. Uh, Everyone unfor- needs one. Do all the things. Yes, unfortunately, I've got a big old bulky radio and that's about as good as it gets (laughs) and you work specifically in 
child abuse. Is this correct? Uh, well, not anymore. I've gotten out of that line of work, but I did for a number of years. And now I just work in, um, it's just uh, other. I, uh, I get to everything that doesn't fit into somebody else's purview. So a wide variety of things. But yeah, I spent a long time in, uh, in child abuse. And how did that pan out for you? Well, personally, not great. I mean, it was, I mean, it was a fantastic place to work in terms of, you know, experiences and being able to do good things for people. And uh, certainly on the critical thinking level, it uh, really forced a great deal of stretching the mind and exercising that, that particular muscle. But uh, personally, not, not so great. Came out of it with a diagnosis of some PTSD, uh, largely related to some of the work that I did in that, uh, that unit. We discussed that briefly the last time we spoke. Really, what I was trying to get at is a lot of these cases are he said, she said, and there's really no right answer as to what should yes. take place. I mean, it, it should never be a trial by media. And I'm very cautious. No. What is the right step if you suspect something is taking place? Well, I mean, the best thing for any parent that they can do with their child is just ensure that they've got an ongoing rapport so that a child can always come to them with a problem, that a child can always talk about their day and talk about something that may have, you know, they may, may not have seemed quite right to them, because um, that's the first line of defense is getting in before something ever happens. The, a child who's talking to their parent is going to be a child who's going to be capable of talking about, you know, um, any sort of grooming behaviors that they might be experiencing. So that's, that's kind of the first step, because if you can get in before anything bad happens, well, that's uh, that's the world to that child. But if there is any sort of grooming behaviors, parents can teach their children about strangeness rather than being afraid of strangers. Because the reality is that 80% of child abuse comes from within the family unit. Another 16, 17%, and it depends on the, the studies, but they're fairly consistent. Those are going to be the priests, the coaches, the teachers, people that are you know outside the family unit. Mm. Only about th- 2 to 3% of child abuse actually comes from people who are effectively strangers to the child. So really, you know, we're parents and, and media and society puts all this emphasis on that two or three percent when really they should be looking a bit more at the behaviors that are coming from that other 97, 98 percent. Mm, a little closer to home. Unfortunately, yeah. And for the children who are yet to be able to speak? That's a tough one because you, uh, and I guess it really it just comes down to is just know who your your child is going to be with during the day and you know it's a reality in most of the western world that working parents Parents often have to utilize day homes so uh, or other forms of childcare. So all you can really do is just be really aware of where the child's going to be during the day and who's going to be there, and just you know try to minimize those risk factors. And above all else, just be true to yourself. And if you're getting a bad feeling about something, just you know go with that. I'm curious. As, and I know you can't discuss specific cases, yeah. but where was the line drawn? What pushed you over the edge towards this PTSD scenario? Well, you know, it's <laughs> that's a wall made of many bricks, and there, I mean, there was one, there was one case in particular, and it just involved horrific facts. You know, just some of the most vulgar sexual abuse that you can, well, I, I hope you can't imagine. And that was, I guess, after I'd been working that case, and, and it was for a prolonged period of time. That's that's where I'd, I found that I couldn't ignore it anymore. The, the you know what I was going through, not being able to sleep, having uh, you know, blood pressure up around you know stroke levels. These things kind of came to the four and uh and that's when i started one realizing that i had that my cup was full and i needed to get out of child abuse but also uh i had to seek some you know help for myself as well and what sort of resources were at your disposal within the 
organization with which you worked? Well, I'm really lucky in that I work in a really, really progressive, um, forward-thinking uh, service. I mean, other people, you know, go through far worse than what I did and, and don't have the resources available. But you no, know, we have a we have a staff psychologist. We've got you know doctors available, and we've got and and they're trained in PTSD. It's unfortunately uh, kind of endemic amongst first responders, not just police, not just detectives, but paramedics, firefighters, uh, anybody's on that front line. So uh, unfortunately, we've gotten very good at uh, you know breaking people, but also fairly good at uh, giving them the resources that they need to get past that when they do break. Now, you mentioned the word psychologists, but uh, let's go the other angle with the psych. Let's go towards psychics. How's Yes. <laughs> how is woo and mysticism impacting what's taking place in the police force? Well, fortunately, it really doesn't have a huge, it doesn't have a huge role to play. But uh, again, one of the things that I suspect that happens throughout the Western world is that every time you've got a missing persons case, every time you've got um, a potential homicide where somebody is missing, you do get the psychics coming out of the woodwork and trying to be helpful. And I, and I do believe that the vast majority of them are genuinely believe they're possessed of a gift and, and want to help out. The fact is that they're wrong, you know, or sometimes they're right, but on very obvious uh, things like one that I worked on recently where we a uh, missing persons case. The joke between my partner and I was she's going to be found near water, which is what they always seem to say. <laughs> like it's because uh, people go that far from water usually. The problem is that sometimes you do get you know, you can sometimes get officers who think not quite so much along the lines of that this is woo and this is can be just completely disregarded, but rather that if they're being given information irrespective of the source, they should at least consider it. And that does end up, uh, and it doesn't happen often, but but it, once in a while. And you, you see people who will follow up these lines, not necessarily believing it, but believing that they might be somehow held a bit negligent if they just disregarded it out of hand. Hmm. What sort of real world consequences is this happening on from your anecdotal perspective. Yeah, I mean, it is only anecdotal, but it, it does happen. And certainly just about every missing persons file that I've worked on, that's come up, where you do get people sending in these tips. I, I should preface this in saying that I actually don't necessarily want to discourage people from, you know, I, I would like to, you know, as an atheist, as a skeptic, as a humanist, I would like people to maybe not believe in, you know, supernatural abilities like that. But I can't really affect that. But I also don't want to necessarily have people not wanting to come forward to the police and give their information to. Certainly, you know, recent events in the United States uh, with the relationship that, you know, uh, communities have with their police services, I, I actually kind of like it when people will come out of the woodwork to talk to me, even if it's going to be a psychic, even if it's going to be completely wrong. I'm not going to necessarily follow up on it. Well, I'm not going to follow up on it, but I'm not going to do anything to dissuade them from coming forward with their information just on the, the big picture of that. What is a gut feel? A gut feel? Well, the way that I kind of interpret it is that I am taking information into my head and uh, through a whole bunch of different sources. And even though I might not be able to pin down the precise path that I took, that I've somehow taken a non-linear path to putting together the information, and that's where it's coming from in my gut. So it's uh, yeah, basically, it's piecing together information that I haven't thought enough about. Have you acted yeah. on a gut feel for it to have turned out to be success? Oh, absolutely, uh, on a number of occasions. And some of it's just playing probability fields, I guess, that you make a reasonable guess based upon, uh, you, you know, the best chance of success, which is what you have to do whenever you're doing an investigation. You have to figure out where you're going to be likely to find the information that you need and go with the best source. So sometimes, and that's just a matter of resource management. Even before you, you know the answer, you'll have an idea through experience where you have to look to find the answer. So you, you do break that up a little bit. But even on the street, I had, when I was in patrol, 
one time I was, I was talking to, you know, these young fellows after a fight that had happened on the street and I was just chatting with them. And one of them had this walking stick and, you know, which was unusual for a fellow of his age. Anyway, he seemed to be leaning on it a lot, but he had no limp when I uh, saw him walk. And eventually it, it occurred to me fairly quickly that I had to get that away from him. So I snatched it away from him and very, very quickly learned that there was a long blade, like almost like a sword embedded in it. And uh, it was a bit of a guess and it was a bit of a gamble, but it certainly it was my gut feel that there was something wrong about that. That happens myriad other times in small ways with investigations or with officer safety or with things like that. I'll give you another anecdote. This is uh, mm. from within my own family. I have an uncle who's a police officer or was medically retired now. And right. he was driving in his patrol car one direction, oncoming car the other way. And ordinarily what happens with people who are law-abiding, they're curious about what the police are up to. So they always check out the cops and what they're up to. In this instance, he looked away, and that was enough. So my uncle did the quick U-turn, pulled yeah. him over. Guy breaks a cold sweat, thinks, oh, I might just do a quick investigation uh, around the car, take a quick look for a safety check. Do you mind popping the boot? There's a dead body. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh you know, and that and that's a, that's one of the things that, that unfortunately, when it comes time to for court, being able to articulate gut feelings is is really difficult because you have a feeling, and but when you go back and you and you replay it, that uh, that gave you that gut feeling like that you can go back and articulate. But sometimes, you know, you're, you're not always thinking until all of a sudden you know something's wrong. Is this a learned skill? Well, the gut feeling isn't. I, I don't think so. Anyway, I mean, there's two things that you can learn about it, though. First and foremost is listening to it and trusting it. That you know you. you your instincts are going to they come to you for a reason and you get you get these gut feels you get these you know feelings whether something is is right or wrong or or there's a problem or not just learning to trust yourself and allow those feelings to come and to trust enough to act on it when when appropriate the other thing you can learn though is to articulate it and to be able to go back and try to piece together exactly how you got to that gut feel. How is this different to a gut feel that a theist may have that God exists? You know, it is really no different at all. The problem is that they're taking, and I think this is one of those times where this is actually a, a sort of God of the gaps in your gut, where people, you know, will think this couldn't be just an accident because, of course, they don't necessarily under, understand the way the, you know, the world came to be or they don't understand evolution. They don't understand uh, a lot of the science that we now understand. But just as a layperson, they look at this world and go, well, that's pretty amazing. I, I can't imagine how this could not be created. They will look at, you know, the beauty of a flower and see it as being created with beauty for us rather than us evolving to see its beauty. It's going to be a gut instinct. It's just going to be based on some wrong inputs or some right inputs that are run through a different filter that gets them to believe in the supernatural. I disagree. I think the gut instinct is learned. It's a learned skill because everyone has a gut instinct. The difference between perhaps your position and that of a theist is you know where you can attribute the inputs too. Yes. You know, you can overcome these biases and possibly disregard yes, them a little yeah. more rapidly. I see where you're coming from. I, I, I don't I don't disagree. I think the ability to use that gut feel or the the ability to interpret and like you said, remove the biases 
Mm. Um, that that absolutely is learned. Yeah, I do think that our brains sometimes make non-linear jumps to conclusions that uh, just instinctively that that come across as as instinctive or gut feel. Mm. But but uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Very well. Well, I might let you get back to catching criminals and fighting crime and protecting the innocent. Is there anything further you'd like to just drop in there? A little charity you'd like people to investigate? I don't have any specific charities that are any more than because I, I know you've got an international audience and and well, I guess it really just comes down to act local. Every place has got boots on the ground, mental health charities that do wonders for people and, and not just people for with PTSD or that are coming out of frontline position, but really doing good work for people suffering mental health problems because I think it's a bunch of hidden injuries out in our world and there's a lot of good people doing really good work. Very well. Well, at Big City Dick 1, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'd love to have you on. I, lo- I love these sort of on-the-street views that you can bring to the table. I find this stuff really interesting. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. I've enjoyed it for a long time, and it's an honour to be part of it. Thanks for coming on. Take care. You as well. Thank you. Herd mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2075, contacting you using Ray Comfort's time-travelling 8-horsepower solid gold butt plug version 2.0 with hacked firmware. It's been an uncomfortable ride. Now, back in the year 2015, Patrick, Mike, Stephen, David, Deviston, Daniel, Glenn and another David, Philip, Craig, Emily and Charlotte helped contribute to the making of the Herd Mentality podcast by their per-episode contributions at patreon.com slash herdmentality. A special thanks to Frankie for her donation via PayPal as well. This allowed the show to help make loans to Tour in Vietnam and Arena from the Philippines via Kiva.org to help these women in developing countries to further their education. Now, back in 2015, listeners of the show also joined the Herd Mentality Lending Group on Kiva by simply going to Kiva.org and searching for Herd Mentality. Yes, it really was that simple. This bunch of misfits have made over $4,000 of loans across the globe, including over $1,000 just from this show. This episode was released on Friday the 10th of July 2015, and tonight, if you can catch it in time, you see what I did there? You can see Peter Bogosian at Stratton's Hotel, second floor, 249 Castle Ray Street in Sydney, to see him talking about de-radicalising jihadis, BYO Qurans. Tomorrow night, on the 11th of July, you can join us for a live recording of The Herd Mentality at the Royal Hotel, 68 Blacksland Road in Ryde, Sydney. It's free! And as is traditional with this format, we never know what's going to happen. It could get very messy. Come along, bring a friend or an enemy, and find out how you know what you think you know because Peter knows everything about knowing things. Now, you may be wondering what happened to the interview with Maha that was referenced earlier in the show. Maha was discussing a fundraiser to publish her children's book and had reached the goal before this episode went to air. So it's going up on the Patreon supporter page along with the discussion I had when Ra, who plays Raylene on the Raygate sketches, came to stay at the Herd Mentality Recording Dungeon. A little thank you for the contributors to the show. Now I must run! Ray Comfort's device has almost run out of juice. Until next time!